welcome to the Bro Novo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. What's up, everybody? How you doing? The great Bill Burr has a, a weekly podcast, and he always starts it off by saying, how are you? I'm just checking in on you. <laughs> Which always cracks me up. So I'm going to do that as well. How are you? I'm just checking up on you. Happy Thursday to you. Happy Thursday to me. Congratulations. Another week in the books. I'm happy to be alive, folks. Life is fragile. And I'm happy that we're all here for another Thursday episode of the Pro Nouveau podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Pierce. As always, I've got someone inspired and inspiring to be a guest on our show this week. This week I'm chatting with Dave Gold. Dave is a lifelong spiritual seeker, retired trial attorney, divorcee who eventually found love, and now a individual using his life experience to help other folks navigate life. Dave and I immediately hit it off. Uh, we definitely had a really nice connection, a nice chemistry, if you will. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. We talk about a lot. Uh, check out the show notes if you want to get a quick overview, but honestly, I would just say dive in. This is one of my favorite episodes I've recorded so far, and I think you'll see why shortly. So, Also, if you want a little pre-read, go check out davegold.com, read his bio, and I think a lot of the things we talk about and the topics we cover kind of make more sense in that context. So thanks to Dave for coming on the show. Thanks to you all for being part of this journey. And we'll see you next Thursday on the Bro Nouveau podcast. Okay, off to the races, Dave. Good morning. How you doing? Good to see you, Thomas. Likewise, where are you uh, phoning in from here today? I am in uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and I want and for the people. Is this an audio and visual, or just audio? Just audio. So I just want the people that don't know. Is it Thomas? I said Thomas looks like an architect. He's just one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. You're just a really <laughs> handsome, rugged, you know, just have this perfect look. I don't know how you do it, but uh, thanks, man. I, I certainly appreciate it. Good, uh, good genetics, I guess. And I mean, I, I, I work my ass off, I work out every day, so yeah, me too. Anyway, I, I love beauty in all of its forms, so I'm yeah, including other people. All right, go ahead, it's your, your podcast. No, yeah, that's great. Tell me about your workouts. What do you do for, for your health and fitness? Well, that's crazy. Like I, I told Julie yesterday, I, I was a hot yoga guy for me. I've been doing yoga for, you know, God, 40, almost 50 years. <laughs> so nice. that's the main thing. But I, um, I was a hot yoga guy until the pandemic. And then I, we, there's actually like one hour. We're in a wooded area where there's enough sunshine that I can go out and do it in the sun. So I'm out in the driveway. It's 38 degrees. I'm in a pair of shorts and the FedEx guy comes up and, you know, it looks at me like he just entered some kind of parallel universe. Like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> so anyway, but that I, it's partly how I'm wired and it's partly that I've just, uh, I'm, I'm turning 70 in a month and I'm, I still have the energy of a child. So whatever, whatever it is that I'm doing, that's fostering that energy. That's what I keep doing. Incredible, man. You look about 50, so Thank whatever you. you're doing is working well. Mutual admiration society. <laughs> I have a beautiful young wife who I absolutely adore, and that has a hell of a lot to do with it, too. For sure. So I'm, I'm at the age where, you know, I'm 26. Mm. You know, I'm in that, like, in-between phase, I guess I'll call it, of, you know, ch- childhood is, is well in the rear view mirror, but, you know, I'm not – some of my friends are getting married and all that, all that good stuff is going on. But 
one of the questions I always ask people my age about who are married is how, how did you know when you were ready to get married? So that's, that's an interesting one for me. You want me to, you know, Julie, it's, it's <laughs> I, I built my business, you know, I said, can you get, cause obviously this podcast isn't, but I said, I get paid to tell people how much I love my wife. I mean, if there's a better goddamn gig in the world, I have no idea what it is. So what, can I answer that question? Is that okay? I didn't know if that was rhetorical or whether you really wanted to leave off with it. No, no, yeah, I want to know. Okay, so I got to tell. I'll I'll launch into a little bit of creation myth here, and that and it'll help your listeners get a better understanding of who I am and what I do. So I, I when I was a kid, I'll tell a story from this angle. When I was young, seven, eight, nine, I I dreamed of a great love. You know, I just knew that was something that I really wanted, and. At the same time, I didn't have the, I don't think I had the guts or, or the or the faith or the confidence in myself to think that I'd ever really have it. But but my strategy was I was just going to be so successful and so rich and so famous that, that, that they could look by whatever physical or psychological limitations I have, you know, and I ran that right. down and that didn't, you know, I, I, life kicked me in the ass pretty hard. My father died when I was 19, a bunch of stuff happened and. And so then I tried to spiritually bypass life and love. I thought I happened to meet the man who became my spiritual teacher when I was at my first year of law school. And I, and in addition to getting a taste of transcendence, I, I thought, well, this is the way I can get rid of all my imperfections by just transcending them, just bypassing them. And in the process, I thought that I would trade human love for divine love. And I was celibate for many years, which, you know, I was just talking. It's funny. My uh, my publicist or whatever was is running that experiment and wanted to ask me a lot of questions. It was like post traumatic stress disorder. I was going back to those years. But anyway, <laughs> I, I I really, 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 you know, in addition to just wanting the truth or the absolute or God, whatever you want to call it, I wanted to be freed of this hunger that I had for human love. And. Um, and I ran that experiment, you know, in various forms for decades. Um, and then I got married late. Um, and it was not, it was, you know, it wasn't, I knew better. And then, then I knew better to get married. I knew that the person I was with, but I, at this point I was almost 50 years old and I just figured what the hell. And then, and when I was in, in, when I was 62 years old back in 2013 or whatever, somewhere in there, I, everything fell apart. My, I had made a lot of money in business and law and various other investments and stuff. And I lost a, over a million dollars in a company that I started that I was just doggedly determined to bring to market. Um, this, the second spiritual organization I was with fell apart and my marriage fell apart. And, um, you know, it's kind of a classic story of surrender. And um, a, a few things happened. One is that I actually ended up having an experience that, a spiritual experience that I don't know if I ever really believed I would have. Um, I don't claim any great, you know, I don't claim to be enlightened or a master or anything, but I, it answered my questions. And then shortly after that, um, Julie, it was just a friend just someone that I was thrown in with in, in life. I, I came and we were just, we were just spiritual buddies and I didn't have any sexual, there was no chemistry, nothing like that. And then, Suddenly, and this is the this here's the longwood way to get the answer, but without the context, it would just sound like a stupid story. Is we didn't fall in love; our love was revealed. We were friends. 
we had respect. We had common values. Our kids went to school together. One of our daughter, one of my daughter, and one of her, one of her children. But suddenly, it's like the scales fell from my eyes, and we both knew it happened over a course of three days, and it instantly happened remotely. I was in Denver at a board meeting. She was here in the area in North Carolina. But over that course of time, it became so clear that, as Julie said, our we didn't fall in love. Our uh, our love was revealed, and that love is eternal. It doesn't have any edges. I, I looked for the edges of that love and I couldn't find the edges, which I knew was infinite. Um, it is constantly revelatory. It's a surprise because look, I've been a trial lawyer. I've been a hard nosed businessman. You know, I got, I help others start businesses and grow businesses. So I, I got my feet on the ground. I'm not just living in some, you know, fairy world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All the time. I wouldn't deny that I have some access to some other realm. But anyway, the long-winded answer to the question, Thomas, is there's a knowing. There's a point where trust becomes knowing, where faith becomes knowing. And that knowing is mysterious, but it's undeniable. And um, one more interesting thing I'll say, and then I'll let you get a word in. <laughs> but something that my father said, he said that you that the love is eter- this love is eternal and it, and nothing can it's and nothing can ever change it but we have a choice in this lifetime whether to live it so it's it's eternal and it's precarious and it's a beautiful way to live it's like heaven on earth the heaven part is i can't change it it's there you know no matter what what happens in, in my daily life or in our experience but at the same time i could i could i could screw it up you know, I could be a jerk. I could keep my, you know, my stepdaughter said, Dave, get your head out of your ass. You know, I can keep my head up my ass and or yeah. make bad decisions. So, but anyway, I, I, if, if there's anything to what I'm, you know, I'm saying that I would mm-hmm. end with, is it we deny ourselves, we, we disqualify ourselves from this kind of love. We are, we self disqualify. And while I can't say, you know, what's the magic formula? People wants the magic. I can't give you that. I can tell you that if you still believe you got to be perfect, if you still believe you're not ready for love, if you still believe you're not worthy of it, if whatever, whatever limiting beliefs you have, will continue to push it away. And more than anything, if we can just free ourselves from those limiting beliefs in every part of our life, from love, business, self-actualization, whatever you want to call it, then life becomes beautiful. Lovely. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a huge step. And I, for me, I remember clearly the first person I dated, the first girl I dated who really gave me that love, you know, and, and, you know, made me see myself as beautiful and as, you know, deserving of all these things. And it's not like other people hadn't, but yeah, I think, you know, it's that moment when someone kind of pulls back the curtain and shows you, this is what, uh, this is what feeling good looks like. You know, and you deserve that. And you now, you know, and that was a really cool kind of interaction. It was relatively brief, but, you know, I think like she gave me that like belief in myself. Like you said, like, you know, like the, the more like not superficial, but like, yeah, like you're a, a you know, beautiful man, like embrace that. And I think for, for her, like I, sh- I showed her that like a man can be tender and, loving and supporting and you know and this was like this didn't even work out you know this isn't like the love of my life type person or anything but i don't know it's just the looking back like a really beautiful 
kind of shared experience. And yeah, man, I think the other thing that was cool about what you shared there is around admitting or kind of acknowledging we're not perfect. And it's, it's funny because like a five-year-old could tell us that, you know, no <laughs> one's perfect. Everyone knows that, but it seems like, you know, especially men, the successful businessmen get trapped in this like ultra ego driven world where they have to be number one and then it becomes their downfall. Wow. So I got to tell you, I got to tell I mean, I don't know what, this, what the reach is and how, but I mean, you're just a beautiful guy. You really are. I mean, there's such depth and authenticity in you and just the way you told that story. So I just want to say, I'm, I may be, you know, three times your age, but I, I'm, 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 I'm humbled. So, and that's all the smoke I'm going to blow up your ass for the rest of the podcast. Okay. <laughs> but now I, I want to speak to a couple of things that you said, because there's, there's so much, so much wisdom in there that, that, yeah, that I'm so glad, you know, I, I, it's like an old, I'm just so glad when people get this understanding so much earlier in life. It wasn't my destiny to do that. But anyway, one is that when Julie, when this, you know, this beautiful, intuitive, psychic, spiritual, great mom, you know, all these things I go on and on and on. I couldn't figure out what the hell she, how could she love me? And it, and it, it just shook my self image. All the spiritual work I did 30 days in a cabin, celibacy, you know, all of this stuff, teachers and whatnot, to try to, get rid of my ego or whatever, my ego couldn't stand up in the light of her love. And that, that was such, you know, what a beautiful way to be free. It's a lot better than cold showers in the middle of the winter out on your, you know, rustic <laughs> I have that, you know, I, that, I've done that route. So one, like you said, it just, it validated you in a way yeah. that actually shook your self-image. And, and, and that's just, you know, again, there's just such beauty to that. And I, and one thing that, that I've, I do in my, I call it my work or whatever, just in my interactions is the greatest gift we can give to another human being is to see them. Everybody wants to be seen. Like I see you. Yeah. I see you. I just see who you are. And, you know, and so when you're seen and you're loved, that is so validating. And it, it validates yourself. And then you in turn, because you're seen and loved, have a little bit more courage. Like we're talking about the men with the, with the armor and the egos and, no, you know what? It's safe for me to come out to peek like a turtle, peek out from under my ego and my armor. <laughs> and then you peek out a little bit and life rewards you when you peek out a little more. But that whole cycle begins, as trite as it sounds, with being loved. And whoever that young lady is, she played her perfect role. You know, like she, she auditioned for the part. She said, it's going to be a walk-on role. It's not going to be permanent. But she played the role perfectly, <laughs> came into totally. life, affected you. And then these are just the vignettes that I live, how I live my life. And I think you do, maybe you become more conscious as we speak. But you just, these are like vignettes in love. You just walk into people's lives like you do the podcast. It's a vignette, right? Mm -hmm. You just come in, mm -hmm. interact, play our roles, go on, but you never know what's going to be changed. Totally. Yeah, I love that analogy of the door with love. About not, you know, love comes in and out of our lives, right? But don't close the door on it because you never know when it's going to walk back in. I just love that that imagery because it's and, so and true. Imagine if I just like one little thing. Imagine I, you know, there's a monastery in South. I I, I mentored hundreds, you know, hundreds of college students here in the area with Duke, UNC, and State when I was had my software company. And there was a there was a monastery that one of the kids went to, and I started spending time with one of the few Jewish guys to go behind the walls. I think they thought I was Italian or something. 
But anyway, I, I asked them and they, they said, you know, they, they don't do service. We said, we don't go out and, you know, do the lepers in Calcutta. We don't do that stuff. He said, what we do is we treat every visitor who comes to our doors if they're Jesus Christ. And imagine if we treat everybody, and I do, I don't mean not like Jesus Christ, but I treat the prime delivery guy. I beat the you know, the person that I call up because I'm canceling my cable service. Whatever it is, I treat everyone with love. And then it's not just the beautiful woman that walks into your life or the perfect business partner. But imagine living your life that way, that everybody that comes into your life is an opportunity in life. All right, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No problem. I, I think it's a good it's a good mindset, man. And it's also hard to live up to that for me. Well, for everyone, brother. <laughs> you know? Yeah, cause, but it's true because, let's so say you said, it's kind of the idea of like seeing people and and just, I feel like we kind of get caught up in these roles. You know, it's like, this is, I have my identity. I have my little identity prepackaged. You know, it's, yeah, I got right. my job, I got my relationship, right. I got my sports or whatever the hell, you know, it is that people value and identify with. And then the, Instead of going out, into the, this happens to me, like instead of going out into the world and just being and interacting with people and, you know, seeing what happens, it's kind of like we play this role. Yeah, like seeing the cashier, not not seeing a mother or a father or a brother or a, an artist. It's like assigning people these roles. And especially, man, you know, with, I would say, homeless folks and, yeah. you know, those dealing with drug addiction that's the one that really like breaks my heart and just, mm. you know, really like it's tough because there's just, you can't, you can't, you can help people. You can talk right. to people, give them a conversation, a little humanity, but you know, it's like, I'm not going to be the one to pull them out of their you know situation, but it's just hard to see that and, and know that on a mass scale society has pretty much exiled them. And that, that sucks. Cause there's a, there's a person in there. So I want to, um, so you you got a tender heart and it's not just our egos are about oh I want to be powerful and I want to be famous it's to protect that tender heart of ours and so many of us as I think the people you attract and the people I know the people that I attract they're empaths they feel deeply so one is just recognizing whoa I've got this empathic heart and my as my, my first teacher said my nerve endings are very close to the surface my heart's very close to the surface, you know. And so, you th- and so one is just, wow, how do I deal with that? How do, I, how do I live? And this is one way where the tenderness with ourselves is so critical. Because we be, I be, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I have these characteristics that I don't like about myself. They get in the way of love. They, they don't feel authentic. And I, and I want to change them, and I, I don't like myself for having them. But I realize, well, those are just all mechanisms that I came up with. So that I can, my tender heart can live in this world. And so there's a way of just one being tender for these parts of ourselves, these compensations that we, we, we do for that. But I'm going to give you a couple of things for what it's worth. And it's funny, I do this, I, I, I do this talk for founders, for company founders, or I do this presentation about the three keys to enlightened decision making. And there's two of them that just come to mind right now when you're talking. And the first is, is it mine to do? That's what I ask myself. Is this mine to do? I can't, you know, it's funny. I started, a, I have a company, of, uh, I, I guess it's a, it's a non-profit now, but it's called, 
um, Web Squared is for black entrepreneurship. I was always pissed off about racial injustice. But it, it wasn't mine to do. But I walked into uh, the, to rent a tuxedo from my stepson. And the guy that was a young black guy, and we, you know, I just really liked him. And what do you do? And he wants to be an entrepreneur. And I thought, shit, it's hard enough to be an entrepreneur without being a young black entrepreneur in the South. And so, like, it was mine to do to help that guy in the moment. And that grew into a whole organization that's helping nice. scores of entrepreneurs. So it's like, you just respond, what's mine? In the moment, mine was, I like this guy. I want to see if I can help him. Let me make a couple phone calls. So, you know, rather than say, oh, my God, how do I tackle racial injustice in this world? So mm-hmm. one is, is it mine to do? And this is a really good question to ask yourself. And another one is, how does a decision make me feel? And I do this all the time. Like you and I had a mix up, you know, it was, and my fault. I'm sure it was on my fault. You had a mix up on this. And I thought, okay, well, he stood me up. And I thought, that made me feel terrible. I thought, no, this guy, I want to connect with this guy. So to, to just, and I, somebody blew me off yesterday. You didn't blow me up. I'm saying, I just said it was, and it just made me, I thought, this is the third time, the hell with him. And that was, that was, that made me feel good to say the hell with him. Right. Yeah. So you don't, you can't, <laughs> so you can't set these criteria up up front which we all want to do. We all want to protect ourselves by saying, here's the rules. You get two blow-offs and then the third time you don't come or whatever. No, it's like, do I trust myself and do I trust life enough to show up in the moment and respond? Not react, respond. Mm-hmm. That takes a big yeah. part. Yeah, that's a, I, I, that's a good way to put it, man. And it's so true. I do have a ton of empathy and... I guess that's part of the motivation, right? To why I did this and created this program is just because I think there's a lack of this interaction for men out there. You know, we don't know each other, but I'm not trying to impress you. You're not trying to impress me. Neither of us really give a shit. We just want to talk and have fun and, and be honest, you know, and that's, that, that's, that's great. Like there doesn't need to be a facade of it hiding behind a sports analogy or talking about business or the back nine, baby. You know, it's like, those are like such, so tired. So, you know, so overused tropes that I feel like it's unfortunate that we get kind of subconsciously boxed into. And you know, what's funny, man. So this whole, this whole program, I'm about six months into this, this whole discussion on masculinity. What does it mean to be a good man? And I've realized one of the dangers of, of it is that on one hand, I think I am promoting a good conversation, but I'm also generalizing men a lot, right? I'm putting people into boxes. And that's something I learned too, you know, with the whole conversation on racial inequality, for example, and, and my, and my quest to kind of deepen my self-awareness and kind of own my privileges. I realized that along the way, it's, it's a fine line between generalizing people and, and kind of using these identity markers to our disadvantage and, and kind of in the attempt of, understanding ourselves and other betters actually <laughs> just putting us in these really generic boxes that don't help anything. So yeah, it's interesting, man. Cause I, I don't, I don't think that all men are stuck in this, you know, kind of limiting box. Cause there is, there is a movement, I think, and this is becoming more mainstream, but still I think wor- worth the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So again, you, I'm, you know, I'm like a shark. You just have to throw a little bit of chum into the waters and I'm, I'm at it. So, <laughs> so it's, it comes back to ju- judgment and, you know, and there's the judgment that we have 
with others. And then it's easy for us when we judge to put them in a box. Very easy. And, you know, it was shocking for me. I, I've had the same CPA for 45 years, you know, and I started my, and we're just good friends and blah, 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 blah. And then I happened to, to discover in the conversation with him during the election cycle, we were on opposite sides of the fence. And I thought, wait a minute, I can't imagine there'd be somebody who could, I'd like so much, we have such a rapport, but he's over in this camp, you know? And, and so it's so much easier to say, oh no, you're one of those. Okay, the hell with you. But the, but the, the back of the book answer, the cheat code for this, is we judge ourselves. And as long as we're judging ourselves, we're going to judge others. And there's a way that to try to free ourselves from judging others before we free ourselves from judging ourselves, it won't work. It doesn't, it, it, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, whatever I'm, I'm judging too. So there's something, first of all, to realize that it's the judgment that puts people into boxes. And it's because we put ourselves into boxes. And when we start, we start taking ourselves. And I found this, I was very judgmental, always been. My first teacher was incredibly judgmental. I thought that was spiritual to immediately be able to typecast people and dismiss them or bring them in. And I found that just so horrible. And it's only when I, when I have just allowed myself to be everything that I am, that I can allow other people to be, uh, other people to be who they are. There's a way that when we, and I, and this is one of the advantages of the spiritual work as well as the heart, heart of the path, heart of thing. I see myself in everyone. So it's so, it's, you have a different relationship with people when you actually can see yourself in them. I see, like I see, I just see this, this tender hearted guy that wants to do good. That's got, you know, that's that, that has talent, has all these things and finding his way through, you know, I just, cause that's me. This is me. I just, so I don't, it's not like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm smart or, um, you know, I take cues. I do all that too. Cause I used to be a trial lawyer for God's sake, you know, a sales guy, but no, it's like, and then, so there's this, that, that way of, of, when you're open with yourself, you can be open with other people. And I used to say when I was a lawyer, I, I don't want to put people in boxes. Anyway, it's, it's a different story. But honestly, there are stereotypes at work. You know, when I'm picking a jury, when I was picking a jury, there's a certain type of per- person. I have jury consultants to say, you want to pick people like that. That's stereotyping. Now, wow. my, client, my client wouldn't say, oh, my God, I don't want to do that. No, my client wants money or my client doesn't want to go to jail. So in those situations, you say, okay, these stereotypes actually work or these generalizations actually work. So once again, you don't get off the hook. You just, you meet people where they are and you feel the universality of them. And and then love happens. That sounds it's like such a slippery slope, a jury consultant. I've never heard of that term. So basically you can, you know, if you obviously you want a certain outcome. So, in, okay. So, is it very state by state, or how does a jury get picked? Then, is it the prosecutor? Is the defendant the, the prosecution picks the jury? Well, we, there's different. No, the way the way the process works is you have a jury pool, which is you know there's a way that they, you just you know and a lot of people have been on jury duty. You get that <laughs> statement. It's terrible. You know, I mean, oh my god, I got to. Yeah, there's a way. Generally, they go for the voter registration rolls, and, and they'll call it. You know, if you have a jury and they'll call 30 people in and then the judge will ask some general questions. I mean, first of all, you get excused. But anyway, the judge asks some general questions. Do you know the defendant? you have this, anything, you have any health issues, blah, blah, blah. And so those people, and then once the people that kind of get through that first line is they're there, they're in front of you, and then each side, we get to ask questions. 
prosecutor, if it's a criminal case, the prosecutor, district attorney asks questions, defense attorney. Without telling you, people might want to know. The judge asks some questions, disqualifies people that have generically, and then each side asks questions to try to, to kind of learn, but also will to winnow out people you don't want to have, and then you have strikes. You could just take people off for no good reason. And there's been, by the way, there's just been a lot of litigation around this because you find a lot of all-white juries in cases with black defendants, and and this, the various courts have said, hey, wait, oh, let's look and see who you strike. You're striking all the black people off. So anyway, that's how you end up with a that's how you end up with a certain jury. Yep. I don't know if that was interesting yes, or helpful or whatever. It is, yeah. I think that's another kind of needs improvement, I feel like, among the uh, population here in America is understanding of our systems of governance. So that, that brings up an interesting point, too, around the mass incarceration state we live in. Yeah. And you were in, you know, in that mix, had a front row seat. So was it something that once the conversation kind of got escalated to a national scale over the last couple of years, you looked at it with a new lens or while you were in the system, did you see problems and see your things that were kind of concerning? So I'm going to answer this again. I, I, I just answer the question. It's not going to answer exactly what you're saying, but I'll give you my, my, my take. Mm-hmm. So I happened to, I was in West Virginia. That's where my, I moved to moved in with my spiritual teacher after I graduated law school and started my practice. And it just so happened that, the town that I was in is where the maximum security penitentiary was. So, and as a young lawyer trying to make my bones, you picked up cases from the penitentiary because no one else wanted them, right? Now, there was an advantage to that. I said, because I'm, I'm trying murder cases when I'm, you know, 25, 26 years old. And the good yeah, news is crazy. whether I win or lose, they're going back to, you know, they're going back into the pen. So it took a little bit of the edge <laughs> off. <laughs> I, I got to fatten up on a few inmates. But what I found... Is with all, and it gets back to what I was saying before about seeing yourself and others. Is I would just, and most of these guys that I would be with, and it wasn't always just criminal, you know, sometimes they were, they just kind of, you know, people were wrongly accused or whatever, they might have civil suits or stuff. But it was almost invariably there, but for the grace of God go I. I could see people who had taken a turn in their life, and I think of the stupid stuff that I'd done, that I was never, never given the opportunity to do something that stupid. I was never desperate enough that I needed money that much. I was never strung out on drugs that, you know, or whatever it was, or so angry at my, my wife for cheating on me that I took it, you know, but there was a way that these people became people to me. And then there's also interesting enough is that the process of going through a trial with someone is very, you know, it's a bonding experience. You can't help mm-hmm. it together with any, you know, and, and so you become, you become intimate, you know, you become emotionally intimate or way psychically intimate with these people. And so you have a much different relationship to them, to them as people. And on the other hand, they were just people that were just bad. They were just bad son of a bitches. They were bad men, man. I, they, they belong, they, you know, some of them yeah. were banging on the they door have, to get They in. have earned their placement there. <laughs> we said, I had guys that were banging on the door to get into the penitentiary. I keep mounting, and finally they just, I couldn't, you know. And once they were, they opened up the door. I tried. I got you off the first two, but <laughs> some of them, you want in there, have at it. 
and also there were just people that were belong belong there. So knowing that there is a story, if you, there's any way that you can grasp the individual, the individual. And the other thing that I had to, and it's it's interesting. I had one case where I was representing a young man who was innocent. You know, as, as strange as that is, it doesn't happen that often. But I mean, like just flat out charged with something he didn't do, and framed by a lying state trooper in a in a wow, and just a horrible in a in a, in a dishonest prosecuting attorney. Ugh. And I had that case, and my teacher said, "You know, you can't let this boy go to the penitentiary because he once they get a young guy like that, and he'll his his soul is lost." So I'm literally battling, you know, feel like I'm battling for this kid's soul, and and against evil, you know. I mean, this this is like this is real shit. That's why if I'm talking about love, you're talking about a man that's been through it. You know, I'm I I didn't I'm not floating above. I've been in. The, and I've been in the wars and um, interestingly enough um, he was convicted he was he was convicted and I I remember when the, when the jury came back I said I am not going this is not going to rest it's not going to happen this boy's not going to this young man is not going to penitentiary and it's the only time I ever literally I think was in the law library at three, you know at three in the morning trying to find something and then and this is an interesting, it leads into something else in terms of the magic that is life. Is that like two months later, the Supreme Court of the West Virginia had some decision that that affected my client and got him, and got, got him out. It had nothing to do with him. It just was a, a piece of law that I could use on appeal to get to get him in the trial. And then we looked at it. Awesome. Yeah. So. Anyway, I don't know if I'm answering your mass incarceration, but I can tell you that when you are connected with humanity, that you can feel the pain of that humanity. You can feel the injustice of that humanity. And that's the price we pay for being empaths. And that's why knowing what's ours to do is such a critical piece of it, because we're no good if we just if we if we wear ourselves out and drives ourselves drive ourselves nuts trying to save a world that doesn't want to be saved or can't be saved or is not a situation where this individual wants to wants it, then um, it does nobody any good. Totally. One of the most impactful moments I've had in the podcast so far is I had this brilliant psychiatrist on. This guy's name is Christian Heim, MD, you know, professional classically trained musician, got into psychiatry, and then we we were talking, and one of my my question in the three things game was, um, what are the lessons that took me the longest to learn? Oh no, sorry, it was a question about happiness. And one and one of my answers was that I'm not responsible for anyone else's happiness. And it blew me away because he said, "Wow, Thomas, that I'm going to take away. I'm going to walk away with that because that's something I struggle with." You know, and I'm like, so he's an example, right, of an empath, right? Like he changed changed tact in his life, got a medical degree, you know, is a brilliant guy putting his mind towards psychiatry and helping patients. And, and he even struggles with that, even though he must know on a logical level, I'm not responsible for these people. His empathy is so caught up in it. You know, I, I just thought that was really interesting and it, and it resonates with what you were saying about taking care of ourselves so we can show up, you know, as, as good. Yeah. And if I can also, cause I think this is, again, I feel 
I'd love to meet this guy, by the way. Make me an intro, seriously. Mm-hmm. I just had a yes, like this guy you want to talk to. But anyway, it's something that my my wife's been really good, Julie's been really good at, which is trespassing. So let me give you an example. Let me give you an example, a real life example that I'm still I still it's funny, I want to say I'm struggling with, but I, I play with. So I have a client who's also a friend. And um, I brought him to see uh, an- another one of my clients was unveiling a product and I thought it would be helpful for him and his kids to come see. And he came and he has a daughter who's very troubled. And I have a, a daughter that's been very challenging. So I could relate. We talk a lot and I bring my, my experience because I'm a little bit further down the road in terms of challenges of, of, of having a child that's finding or a, a son or a daughter who's finding his or her own path and how you allow them to live their destiny and still love them and be there for them and not trespass. So anyway, she was really, he was, he and his wife and his other daughter were in working with my other client on this process. I won't get into that. And I happened to be outside with his other daughter, the trouble one who was just cranky and, you know, just mad, you know, just negative and just spewing out negative energy and I just looked over at her and I just asked her a question, a stupid, a silly question. And then I went over and sat next to her. And I just started telling, I saw her and I knew her and I loved her. And I just told her, hey, here's what I see about you. I know your heart. You know, I just went off onto this five minute rap. Okay. Because in that moment, she was seen and loved by a stranger. And she wasn't a troubled kid or a pain in the ass or whatever else, you know. And I just let it come through. And there were, te- there were tears in her eyes. And then there were tears in my eyes. And then her dad came out. And her dad hasn't, we haven't, our relationship changed forever. I feel that he felt that I had violated, you know, that I had gone, I stepped, I overstepped my bounds. Mm-hmm. So then I'm sitting here. And this, this is why I'm saying, look, I don't have all the answers. Nobody does. This is just life. Okay. I gave that, that young lady a beautiful, she was in my field. I gave her a beautiful gift without trying to give her a gift, without trying to be anybody, not trying to save her, not trying to come out. Hey, Julie, you'll never guess what I did today. You know, <laughs> at the same time, did I trespass? Did I violate? He brought his kids for something and I did something else. So we're always living like this. What's ours to do when we're empaths and you realize that people are brought into our field for a certain reason. These are hard ones. These are just hard ones. So anyway, the point I'm making. How how old is she? 16. That's old enough to, I feel like she can set her (laughs) own boundaries and not, and not, you know, not live under her dad's thumb of her dad deciding what is good and isn't good for her. You know? Thank you for that. I, I, I would do it again. And I also, I can't save everyone. It's not mine to save everyone. You know, Julie said something to me really interesting yesterday. She didn't realize I was on a, uh, I was with a client. It was just this person, actually, it was someone that interviewed me. And then after the interview, he wrote me, he said, I cried. I couldn't stop crying after we talked. And we talked again. And then he actually, you know, he retained me, which is kind of weird. Nice. I was just loving him, you know, I was just loving yeah. him up. So anyway, point, <laughs> there's, there's a point to this self congratulatory story. So he, so I, I came out, I had a session with him. I came out and I mentioned something that happened. And Julie said, she didn't realize I was in a client. 
you know, and she said, can't you ever just stop being the smart guy and just be people's friends? Mm. And, and I am, I mean, that, that's what I do. I walk, I'm, I'm everyone's friend. I'm a friend. You know, maybe I know, and I learned this through Julie. Julie and I have a radical, and, and I, and this is another goes back to love and for men, especially is there's a radical equality to a, to a real love. We're, we're, we're radically equal. There's no hierarchy, mm-hmm. but there is deference, meaning that she's a hell of a lot better parent than I am. And I'm a hell of a lot better at making money than she is. So it's not like we're equal in that sense, but there's equality. And I have just found that what I do is like, I don't look at, you know, I'm just being you as a friend, truly as an equal, my equal. Mm-hmm. So there's a way yeah, anyway. People can tell that too. Like uh, I'm reading a book right now. I'm, I'm 12, no, 13 books into a 14 book high fantasy series. It's called the wheel of time. Oh, it's wow. epic. If you want a good story, it's, it's, it's fucking bananas. And so there's this set of characters who are like, you know, the witches essentially to use a simple term. And they're always trying to manipulate people. And there's the, the hero of the story is starts out as a boy, not knowing he's going to be a hero, right? Just a normal person. And then through the story, he evolves and learns that he has his destiny and these things. And his, friends who he grew up with in, the, in this village also grow to be, you know, leaders and, and kind of leaders of the free world, essentially, or in this universe. And one of the groups of women are, they're all, they're quite um, manipulative or they, they have power and they have prestige and they use it to influence people. And one of his, the hero's friends who grew up in the village is also a leader in, in this other group. And she's talking to herself about how do I, how do I, control him or how do I, you know, use him to my ends. And I'm like tearing my hair out. You know, I'm like, he's going to know immediately that you're trying to control him. You know, the people who think they're so smart that they can persuade other and manipulate other people and they don't think they're going to get caught. It's like one, how dumb do you think everyone else is? And two, where do you get off thinking that you can do that? You know, and I'm like, I'm on my Kindle, like, what are you doing? You know? (laughs) <laughs> but I think the reason it resonates is because it happens in real life. Mm. This manipulation yeah. that people, I don't know, people think we're fucking dumb, man. It's like, <laughs> it, there's a, you know, I don't know if when we get to the, I have, I have the answer to one of your three questions. Nice. <laughs> I was just thinking it actually goes to this. So I'm not going to say anything because it, it answers one of the three questions. <laughs> nice. Well, there's a set of questions, so it could it could be a variety of questions. So there's no guarantee that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 that's cool. Well, I I would say that I would answer this question, or, or just put, I don't know why what you said. Which all you got? All you, I mean, it's so fucking simple. It's the back of the book answer. All you got to do is show up as yourself. That's all you have to do in life, and I know it's not as simple as it sounds, mm-hmm. but you show up as yourself. And then you don't, and to, for me, the, the antithesis of showing up in myself is wanting something from someone, another human being. And I'll tell you, yeah. this, this is like, you know, you want to know what the edge of my life is? Like I said, I'm, I'm going to be 70 next month. This, almost this month. Yeah, February. I've, I've done so many different, you know, I've done so many different things and had colossal successes and, you know, 
monumental, a monumental failure too, and blah, 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 blah. But the hard, I'm going to do one of the hardest things I've ever done right now. How do you build a business without wanting anything from anybody? That's that is a mind fucker. That's, that's 40 hours a week of my life. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're on the yeah. phone with these people. You want something from them, but you don't want to, you don't want to take something that's not yours. I don't want anything mm. in my life. I don't want you to give me something because I'm articulate or I, I say the right word. Or I hit the right button. But at the same time, I can't sit like a Unabomber in my basement and wait for people to find me. So this is the living experiment. You know, maybe you can have me on in three months or six months and I'll tell you how it's run. But literally, it's like, how do I live my life without wanting anything from anyone else? It doesn't mean that I don't want to have a good experience with you. I don't want, you know, I want things. Sure, I want things. But this is, yep. and, and, you know, we talk about relationships is how do you have a relationship where you don't really want something from the other person, knowing that you do. I want a million things from my wife. I'm happy when I get them and sad when I don't. <laughs> but still, <laughs> not, not, wanting, not wanting to manipulate, not wanting to, to infringe. Yeah upon her autonomy and her freedom and her, the perfection of her expression in the moment, which may not jive with what I would like in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. My, the biggest place where my controlling traits and me trying to dominate comes out in my relationship, which is hard for me to admit, you know, or it's like, you know, just did. So I did. And it's, it's, it's fucking true. And it's like, I don't know. I feel like it's one of those things where I I do well with the, like the tough love angle or the like, all right, like you've, I've identified this is a, I have a controlling trait. I'm now, am I going to cry about it? And, you know, cry, you know, be like, Oh Thomas, that's so weird. No, no, like shut the fuck up and take care of it. You know, like (laughs) the only one that can control it is me, Thomas. So stop. You know, and that's the whole, like you said, this, I'm not like a huge fan of the pop psychology, you know, and the like, you know, extreme ownership, you know, all that stuff. But, but at the same time, I, there is merit in that. I think it's for my, the way my brain works, like keeping it simple and just being like, these are the commitments you made. These are the things you signed up for. These are the things you have to own in your relationship. If you want to have a beautiful relationship with this wonderful person, you know, own, own your end of the street, right? Clean up my side of the street. So that's a yeah, big thing well, for me to, to keep great, in mind. There's great. You're, you're, this is great. So one thing is we, we, one, another, one of the teachers I had said, you want to know the difference between the ego and the real part of yourself? The ego is always a victim and the real part of yourself is never a victim. Mm. So I know right away, if I'm victimized by anything, I'm not standing my true self. So what does it mean to take absolute responsibility? It doesn't mean I'm perfect. It doesn't mean that I'm the one that caused, you know, it's funny. We have a, I, we're having a launch tomorrow for a couple of my clients. We're launching their new product. And I'm in the damn North Carolina. We're going to get snow tonight. I'm thinking, Jesus, you know, I've got all these people. We lined up to come and it's going to snow. These people, if there's a snowflake, you know, they, they, they storm Walmart for bottled water and propane generators, you know? <laughs> so, so I didn't cause that, you know, I'm not, 
when I say absolute responsibility, I'm not the one that's causing the snow. Okay. <laughs> that's not me, but there's, right. a, there's a way that I take responsibility. And part of this gets to the vulnerability. And, you know, this is another discussion we can have another time if you want, but about men, I find myself being a bully or manipulating my wife or whatever. And there's a way that I just go back and acknowledge it. It's not like I'm confessing oh, I'm no goddamn good, but I did something the other day that she asked me not to do, and I just went ahead and did it. And like, wow, talk about breaking trust, you know? It wasn't a big deal. Mm. It was stupid. It's just one of my stupid little idiosyncrasies. It's harmless, except to trust. And then I thought about it, and I remembered something that I had done as a kid. It said very similar, like a compulsion, and I just went back and told her. And and there's a way of of just being, you know, not instead of hating myself and beating myself up or, or justifying it, they're both horrible ways to go. They're the same. Either one's ego, whether you kill yourself or exalt yourself, it's still the ego. But just to be vulnerable enough to say this is what it is. And, and you know, my experience is if, if you're with a person that can't handle that, you're with the wrong person. Does it mean like, oh, well, I, was, oh, I love you, Dave. You're so, no, she might get pissed off and think, Jesus, you've been an idiot for 20 years. But I know in the next, you know, in the next moment, that's that's deepened our relationship. And one of the things that I did with Julie, and I, I've learned this, is I I I told her something I was ashamed, really really ashamed of. And I thought I can never tell her, and she looked like yeah. And, and then, <laughs> and just <laughs> to just you know, because we disqualify ourselves because whatever that thing is that we don't want to tell anybody else, we've disqualified ourselves. I don't mean you've got to go and you know put it on social media or anything. I'm just saying there's a way of freeing our, of, of freeing ourselves because everybody's got one and everybody thinks they're the only person that has one this bad. Mm. So we live in this, this horrible circle thing of, of each one of us disqualifying ourselves and all of us, because we're not as good as the person to the left and to the right. And that's hell. That's hell. And it's a waste of life and it's a waste of energy. And it's a waste of divinity. So there's my soapbox. I thought I had to get on a little bit. Wonderful, man. I, I just want to circle back around. You said you did something she didn't ask you to do, and then you said, but it's not a big deal. Have you confirmed that it's not a big deal for her, to her? No, it was a big deal for her. Okay. Because I broke trust. Right. And, and she's right. everything's about trust with her. Everything's about trust and transparency. You know, here I am. I'm a slippery trial lawyer, you know. <laughs> There it is. <laughs> see, so Thomas, this is the cool, this is interesting for you because, if I may, because you know we talked before. We both have you know you're doing sales. I've done sales, uh-huh. and and I'm grateful for that. You know, and mm-hmm. and everybody that that I. Anyway. But then there's this also like of how do you relate authentically with this person when you still have an outcome in mind. And this is, you know, in Zen, they have something called a koan, which is like an insolvable problem that breaks your mind. So you stop thinking. Your koan is how the hell do you work as a salesman? <laughs> I'm not saying it's wrong or good. It's perfect because you're doing it really. I mean it. But it's just really okay. interesting for you. And in a way, this is your antidote for that. Or this is your, this is for you just to be able to say, hey, let's just have a conversation. Yep. You have read that perfectly. And it works because people who I sell to and interact with, they can tell, I think, but I, you know, dude, it's like, I care. 
I, yeah. I, I care because about the success of the business because of my teammates and because like, I love the people I work with and I want them to be successful and I want me to be successful. But I think the, the path I see for myself is until I find that product or service that I can make my own and have my own business behind, that's when I'm really going to shine. Cause that's when I can put this massive work ethic and this engine I have towards something I actually give a shit about rather than working someone else's dream, you know? But for now I'm content to learn the skills and learn the process and network, meet the right people. And then when that moment comes and the opportunity presents itself, I'm going to be ready to jump on it. There's a lot in there and I, we'll have another conversation off offline about this, but yes, that's when that's yours to do. That's your death. That yours is that. And, and yeah. And so you look at these times and I say, why did I have, you know, seven? Okay. I ended up selling the company. That's great. I, and I sold it right before the market crashed in you know, 2000. So that nice. was good. But but at the same time, why did I have to have all those years on the phone? I hated every minute of it. You know, there is a way, and I'll, I'll just say this and we can move on, but that I mentioned the monastery, and there's a process by which uh, a man becomes a monk. It's called formation. And it's it's the forming process. You're literally re- reconfiguring, rewiring yourself into that. And so when, you're, when you truly step into yourself, you see your whole life as a formation process. And everything, even, it might not all make sense. But you know with a capital K that everything formed, you know, mm. formed that is. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit, you know, I, I, I take comfort in the, in the randomness of life, you know, and I, uh, I've yet to determine for myself if I believe that everything happens for a reason. You know, that's a. Yeah, I, I we'll can. Only, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's not mine to, to. Edu- you know, to whatever, to anything. I, uh, educate, I, you know, he says educate. I always did. I, <laughs> I was using that as pejoratively against myself. But no, it's not mine to try to, I I can tell you though, I, I have something called a hero's journey worksheet that I send out to all my prospective clients. And it's really like, okay, let's pretend your life's a hero's journey. And everything is here to make that, you know, to make that, to, to create that journey. Now let's look at some of these things that happen in your life that feel like they were random and, and now see how they actually formed. You would not be the person that you were if it wasn't for that. And um, so anyway, you know, another discussion, another time. Yeah, for sure. Okay, we'll jump over to three things game. Let's do it. Uh, so whoever's birthday is coming up next in the calendar goes first. So uh, what month is your birthday in, Dave? Uh, my birthday's in three weeks. Okay, so that's right. I win. So you're first. Okay, you win. Correct. I'll, I'll uh, pick a question for you. Let's go with what are three things you have learned about happiness? One, it's our birthright. Hmm. It's not something we earn. It's not something we deserve. It's not something we have to become a perfected version of ourselves to get. That's the wow. first thing. Um, and I would say that I, I, I eschewed, I, I pushed happiness away because I thought it would get in the way of being spiritual. It's not too, it, in my own experience, it's in a relationship. So I have spent 30 days, I used to spend 30 days in a cabin, no, you know, no electricity, no running water, no, per- I didn't have books. I just sat because I wanted to be comfortable in my own skin. And after a couple of weeks, I would get blissful. 
And so there was a happiness that came from from being, you know, from just being in my own in my own skin and feeling my own divinity and my own autonomy. And and then I say at the preface it, that my happiness comes in relationship, relationships and relationship, relationship to ideas, relationship to my my dog that's sleeping at my feet, you know, relationship with you, with my wife, and just so. So the first is our birthright. The second, for me, the happiness is in relationship. And the third is that there that the happiness we most want resides in the unknown. And this is a this is big. And again, you know, everything we really want is in the unknown. Giving away Julie. the trade secrets here. <laughs> Julie is unimaginable. I never could have dreamed her up. Okay, mm-hmm. I had a dream when I was eight years old that this is what my life, you know. So everything we want, the happiness we most want is in the unknown. So the idea that we're going to somehow chart a path to it and create it and become this and do that, and you know, do this, do that, don't get fat kind of thing. No, there's a, there's a trust and a surrender in the unknown. And the art and the magic and the beauty of life is learning how to live in the unknown so that we can get the happiness that we want that resides in the unknown. That's not bad for off the top of my head, huh? That's that. That was. Uh, I would not describe that as bad. No. Oh, good. Very good. I, I know it's a little bar, but it wasn't bad. Oh <laughs> uh, no, that was amazing, man! Thank you for sharing that. I'm I'm looking forward to reading back on that, listening back. Okay, which one should I go for? Okay, what this is a good one? What are three things I've learned about forgiveness? Well. Yeah. The, fir- the first one is... Oh, sorry. This is mine. This is mine. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I would say, you know, I'm in the middle of a forgiveness process with someone close to me. And one thing I've learned about forgiveness is that communicating to the other person my criteria for forgiveness is a good step. And it's it's not with expectation about their reaction. They might they might not react well. But I found for me being able to say, "Hey, I was hurt this way. This is what I'm going to need, or this is what I'm needing from you to feel better." You know, even if they don't give that to me, at least I've verbalized it, and now it's out there. Right now, now I've identified it. Number two, I would say, I think I haven't li- I haven't actually I have a little out. Yeah, I think forgiveness is freeing in a sense. It, it really is. Because now I don't have to carry around, at least on the conscious level, that that bit of trauma or that bit of pain. You know, I think the things we experience happen, live with us in our bodies, and it's harder to move through that. But at least in the conscious level, being able to consciously say, I forgive you and mean it and believe it is very, very powerful. And I would also say I've learned about forgiveness to not judge myself on the speed of the forgiveness because even if being the empath, right, us, you know, best guys in the world, according to us, you know, it can be hard. Even if, if I don't forgive soon enough or I'm not, you know, on a timeline that my mind approves of, don't judge myself because of that too. Because, yeah, it's mine. It's mine to own, right? No one else can tell me when I'm ready to forgive. So, you, yeah. I'm going to add one little thing because I can't help myself. It's all about, <laughs> it'll be, you can't forgive. Anyone more than you forgive yourself. 
the, mm. the capacity of forgiveness is absolutely capped out on how much you forgive yourself. All right. Anyway, that was yours. I don't want to steal your thunder. All right. For sure. Well, um, that was three. Um, let's see. So don't rush it. Communicate what I need. And um, it's freeing. Those are the three. All right, Dave. Well, I'm going to give you a uh, legend status off the bat. Okay. Thank you so much for uh, for coming good. on the Brodevo podcast, man. It's been a lot of fun. Terrific. Let's end it and let's talk for a sec. Okay. Before we go, you do have services. Oh, yeah. You have coaching for men. Sure. So where, where can folks uh, check that out? Yeah. So best thing to do with that, and I'm re- reconfiguring what I'm doing to respond in a moment, but davegold.com, D-A-V-E-G-O-L-D, just my name. So you can check out my website or just send me an email at dave at davegold.com. And I'm generally, I, I'm intuitive and I'm also accessible. So, you know, I'll figure out. And if you feel a resonance here, and if I can say one thing, one last piece of legend status, everyone that's listening. <laughs> Being hard on yourself doesn't make you better. It just makes life harder. And whatever you think you're doing, that you need to be rough and you need to criticize yourself. You need to be, it doesn't mean, you know, that you walk around blindly and think, you know, you, you got to be self-reflective. But this extra layer of, of not good enough is not serving anybody. And that's what I free people from. And if that rig, rings a bell with you, you know where to find it.